I'm very excited um, to be speaking on today's passage um, from Numbers chapter 27 because um, it opens with these words from God to Moses. Go up this mountain in the Abiram range and see the land. Now, I feel like the pictures we saw of the guys on the men's walk, I feel the storm my thunder a bit here. Um, I love hill walking. I absolutely love hill walking. I was gutted to not be able to go um, yesterday. Um, almost nothing better than spending a day um, and I'm climbing a mountain. Um, and I'd love to be told to go up the mountain and see the view. Um, some of you know that I'm um, coming towards the end of, a, I suppose you'd call it, a 35-year journey, trying to climb all 282 Scottish mountains over 3,000 feet, um, called the Munros. Um, here's a picture of my, my nerdy Munro baggers map that I have in my study at home. Um, I should mention, though, that um, for the members of my home group especially, they were only too keen to point out to me um, that, uh, there's a recent news story of a 10-year-old girl from Inverness who climbed them all in six years. So, you know, <laughs> not that heroic, really. Anyway, when Andy Gibson speaks to you, you get family history stories. When Paul, it's holiday pics from ancient ruins. And when it's me, it's Scottish mountains, I'm afraid. But there's lots of reasons why I enjoy hill climbing. And I guess getting a good view from the top is one of them. Um, you know, a reward for all that hard effort and hard graft just to get there. And here's some of the fantastic views from my recent trips to the Highlands. <laughs> I mean, the sheer variety of the view, it's just, uh, it's astounding, I know. Um, and don't look, my, my family look so happy as well, don't they? Yeah, good times. Anyway, today's passage features a much better view than those, a very significant view too, as we'll discover. Um, climbing up to a high point gives you a perspective that you can't get from the ground. So this morning, I invite you to climb with me Moses Mountain and take in the view. Take a look back to see where we've come from. Take a look ahead to see that amazing view and what is ahead of us. And then to try and get a sense of the big view of who God is and what it is he's doing in our world. So let's get our walking boots on and read from Numbers chapter 27, verse 12 to the end. I'm going to ask Kirsty to come and read to us. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up this mountain in the Abarim range and see the land I have given the Israelites. After you have seen it, you too will be gathered with to your people, as your brother Aaron was. For when the community rebelled at the waters of the desert of Zin, both of you disobeyed my command to honour me as holy before their eyes. These were the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the desert of Zin. Moses said to the Lord, May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over the community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and the entire assembly, and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority, so that the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before Eleazar the priest, who will obtain decision from him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. At his command, he and the entire community of the Israelites will go out, and at his command they will come in. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole assembly. Then he laid his hands on him, 
and commissioned him as the Lord instructed through Moses. Thank you. Okay, we're going to cheat just a little bit and use modern technology to, to race to the top of Mount Nebo. That's the mountain in our passage today. And uh, Mount Nebo is in the country um, of Jordan today, just next to, to Israel. It's 820 metres high. The you know, stats are always important in mountain climbing. Almost exactly the same height as the Cheviot in Northumberland. And it looks down on the nearby Dead Sea. And this is what the terrain looks like um, from above. And the view from the summit that Moses would have seen, um, that's the Dead Sea on your left just there. Fantastic view across the whole of that country, the Promised Land. Standing on top of the mountain, we're going to take the view that Moses had. But first, I want us to look back and see the route we've taken as we come to the end of our series in Numbers. The people of Israel have been wandering in the desert for 40 years, and now they're camped right on the edge of the Promised Land. And as we look back, we can see now that all those that came out of Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea have now died, and it's their children who are going to enter the land. The only ones of the original Exodus generation left are Moses and the two spies, Joshua and Caleb. So the view looking back isn't exactly a rosy one. And there's more bad news in our passage as we see a devastating blow for Moses. His great mission to lead the people to the promised land is not going to be completed by him. God reminds Moses about the rebellion in the desert of Zin back in Numbers 20, which Andy spoke to us about. If you remember, the people had been complaining again about a lack of water. And so God gave Moses clear instructions to take his staff and speak to the rock so that water would come out. Instead, Moses disobeys, and the implication is that he and Aaron take the credit for the miracle of providing water, using their power and not God's. But this is a serious failing on Moses' part. God says in verse 14, you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before the people. And misrepresenting God's character before others is serious. He was guilty of the same sin of disobedience as the children of Israel that he'd so often called out in the past. But wait, this is Moses we're talking about. His life's work, and he isn't going to see it through because of one mistake. What is the take-home message here? Do we have to tiptoe around God like on eggshells? One mistake and what you've poured your whole life into is discounted. Can God just drop you like a stone? No, the Bible speaks really highly of Moses. So what we read about him in Deuteronomy 34 is very instructive. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. That is quite a CV. Moses had a unique relationship with God. He stood in God's very presence and heard his voice. You recall that Moses' face even shone so brightly after he came off Mount Sinai. It had to be covered because people couldn't look on him. He experienced God's power close up. But this means, of course, Moses is held to a very high standard. He cannot misrepresent the God he knows better 
than anyone, and they're not the consequences. Sin always has consequences. And for those here who are in any kind of leadership position, we should take this warning very seriously. We must not give a false view of God to those that look up to us. Whether that's at work, in your family, or in church. Whenever we see leaders in our country, especially those who claim to be followers of Christ, misrepresent God to the people and set aside the truth of his word, there will always be serious consequences. So here we see Moses going up a mountain to die because of sin. His sin and the people's. And so Moses prays for a greater shepherd than him who will lead God's people into the promised land. Are you starting to see some New Testament parallels here? We know who the greater shepherd is, don't we? You and I can't and won't get everything right in life. But the good news is that one greater than Moses came and died on a mountain. Not for his sin, but for yours and mine. And we'll come back to that later. How then does Moses react to the judgment of God and the assessment of his own failure? You know, how you react when things don't go your way often speaks volumes about your own character. Moses doesn't moan or complain or think it's not fair. He doesn't argue his case with God or fall into the easy trap of self-pity. What is your immediate response to adversity in life? Do you argue with God, blame others, or retreat into feeling sorry for yourself? Looking back at our own lives, we'll all have failures and disappointments. People who've let you down, perhaps leaders who've not lived up to your expectations. But it's quite likely that the person you've been most disappointed in is yourself. It's really important that we seek to react to setbacks and disappointments, tragedies even, in the way that Moses did. Talk to God about it and try to have an honest and realistic view of yourself. We are not little gods. We need to acknowledge the one who is far greater than us, the Good Shepherd, Jesus. It's important that as we repent of our sin and move forward in life, we try to have a clear view of our own behavior. We've been forgiven so much by God. We need to forgive others, and we might need to forgive ourselves. So far, the view, looking back from this mountain, has not been great. A bit like my photographs at the start, really. There are a lot of dark clouds in the past. We've looked back at where Moses has come from, and we see a lot of failure and struggle. Not long after uh, Lucy and I were married, 25 years ago this summer, I think an appropriate murmur there, so this is right, yep. Um, I decided to take her, uh, you might think that's amazing when you hear this next story, I decided um, <laughs> to take her on a proper mountain trip um, to a place called Ben A in Torridon in the Northwest Highlands. Fantastic place. You've got to go if you get a chance. Um, now, when we were going out, I had taken Lucy hill walking a few times, um, you know, sharing things I like, and she'd enjoyed it. Although I'd always been very careful to make sure the trips were quite short and fairly easy mountains. But now we were safely married, I thought, yeah, we can, we can, <laughs> we can, we can branch out a bit here. Um, and I wanted to take her to see what is you know, one of the best views in Scotland um, from the top of this particular mountain. So we started off with my usual pep talk at the start. The views were going to be amazing. Um, and off we went. It was a windless day to start with, which is usually good. Um, however, for those that don't know, there's a nasty, tiny Scottish biting insect called a midge 
uh, and we were in a midge hot spot in the middle of August. So stopping for a rest was a no-go the whole walk. Then it started raining. And then as we approached the steepest part of the climb in a rather nasty, scree-filled path, kind of three steps up, two back, um, the mist descended. Here's some pictures of that, of that happy day. Um, worse was to come. As we finally got onto the ridge leading to the first summit, a fierce wind picked up from nowhere. It was so bad that we had to walk arm in arm just to make progress. I shouted something which was meant to be vaguely cheery to Lucy through the wind, like, this is a challenge, isn't it? <laughs> the noise of the wind drowned out her response, <laughs> which might have been for the best. Needless to say, you couldn't see past the end of your nose when we got to the top. And it's fair to say conditions didn't really improve for the rest of that walk. We staggered away along the ridge to the second summit. My positive comments of, at least the midges have gone, not really lifting the mood in the camp much. As we arrived at the second summit, I noticed Lucy was now literally hugging the trig, trig point while assuming the fetal position. <laughs> and it was at that exact moment a point of clarity arrived in my mind as the mist and the wind swirled around me. This thought occurred to me. This hasn't gone as well as I'd hoped. <laughs> We arrived back at the car that evening, midge-bitten, cold and wet, having seen almost nothing of the view. So as we pulled up at our friend's house an hour later, it wasn't great to be greeted with the words, sorry, the heating's packed in and the house is a bit chilly. Still, after 25 years, um, we can now look back and, and laugh about this, um, I think. <laughs> that was certainly a disappointing day on a mountain. I don't know what the disappointments in your life are, but I wonder if this passage makes you ask, can we ever be disappointed in God? Can I suggest gently that whatever you're going through, and I don't want to make light of people's struggles, we all know there are people in our church who have gone through and are going through incredibly difficult situations just now. But God is our refuge to flee to, not someone to rage against. Jesus sums it up, in this life you will have troubles, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Can I encourage you to look for signs of grace in the disappointments of life? We can see the signs of God's grace to Moses here. He allows him to view the land. Now we might think that was just a small concession, maybe even rubbing Moses' face in it a little bit. But viewing the land was actually a legal rite of passage in those days. It played a formal part in the process of purchase. Not quite the same as a house viewing in today's terms, but you, you get the idea. Although he wouldn't get to lead the people into the promised land, he was being given a confirmation from God that his life's work was going to come to a successful completion. Look for signs of God's grace in your own life, even when things seem disappointing. Okay, that's enough looking back from the mountain. Now we're going to look ahead as Moses was encouraged to do by God. Despite the disasters of the wilderness years, there's always a fresh perspective, a new beginning with God. God was still committed to his people, and so Joshua is called to lead a new leader for a new era to the children of Israel. 
God's been preparing Joshua for 40 years for this moment. He's not a caretaker manager suddenly appointed because the long-term manager has just got the sack. Maybe God's calling you to a new beginning, asking you to put behind you what has happened in the past, calling you to start something new, to take on a new role in church, to think about getting involved in a church plant in the years ahead, or in your workplace, or to pick up responsibilities at home that maybe you've neglected. Our God is a God of new beginnings. His mercies are new every morning. So Joshua has been on the scene for a while. He first appears leading the Israelites into battle against the Amalekites in Exodus 17. He waits on Mount Sinai while Moses talks with God. And in Exodus 33, Joshua is described as Moses' young assistant who stays at the tent of meeting, the place where Moses talked with God. He had a unique training. He shadowed Moses closely for years, and he's an experienced commander in battle. Remember, he's already been into the promised land when he and Caleb went to spy it out. In fact, it was even Moses who gave Joshua his name. Back in Numbers 13, it's easy to miss the detail that Joshua's name was originally Hoshea, which meant salvation. And by changing it to Joshua, it now means God is salvation. Joshua was the one who had the skills and the faith in God to lead this next generation. Joshua and Eliezer were to be the new Moses and Aaron. And the change of, of leadership was always significant, uh, always a significant moment in the life of a country, a school, a business, or even in a church. Scotland is in the midst of changing its leader with the recent news that Nicola Sturgeon is resigning. And you may have noticed this has opened up a big discussion in Scotland about what kind of leader Scotland wants. Whatever your view of Scottish politics, I would encourage everyone to pray for one of the candidates, specifically Kate Forbes, who has made a courageous Christian stand, as you may have seen in the press. Whatever happens in Scotland, it's a big moment, especially when a long-standing national figurehead is replaced. But here we see God's instructions for how leadership is to be passed on. First, the person with the right spirit is identified. Verse 18, Joshua says, he has the spirit of leadership about Joshua, it said. Then that person is to have hands laid on them and be prayed for publicly. God tells Moses to give him some of your authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. This laying on of hands and praying for new leaders is a practice that has happened in the New Testament too and continues to this day in churches, including our own. You might remember when we had the commissioning service for Joel as full-time worker or for Lucy Atkins when she went to overseas mission. In fact, you might remember as Lucy joined us um, from Yorkshire via Zoom for her commissioning service, I think we laid hands on the laptop screen. You can't get more church life in 2021 than that. <laughs> if you've had the experience of retiring, perhaps, um, maybe you can remember training up your replacement, or maybe you've moved jobs and you've had to explain your role to a new colleague or pass over a project to someone. Passing on knowledge and wisdom from one generation to the next is so important. The New Testament letters are full of advice for the old to pass on to the young their wisdom, their experience, those hard life lessons. Many of us will have given advice to our children or grandchildren or our nieces and nephews, or perhaps you've shared a hard-earned life lesson with a friend. There's only so many opportunities we get to have those kinds of conversations. So we need to make 
the most of them. Back in the 1990s, 2000s, um, I don't know if you're into athletics at all, but the British men's 100-meter relay team would often turn up at major competitions um, like the Olympics with high hopes of a medal. Often they were the favorites, really good team, lots of fast runners. Remember Linford Christie, one of the best runners in the world at 100 meters. But the problem was never their speed. It was the fact they kept dropping the baton. Or they didn't manage to hand it on to the next person in time. You know, in the relay race, you've got a certain section of the track you must hand over before your race is run. A smooth handover is the key for success. Now, we might forgive them as they had about well, less than a second to make the, the handover and things often went wrong. But the truth is we are all baton passers throughout our whole lives. We maybe get a lifetime to share our faith in God with others. But are we doing it? This is the public moment where Moses passed on the leadership to Joshua. But as we saw, Joshua has been learning from Moses' example for years, and we are all called to act like that. Serve God where he has put you, in your circumstances, looking to share what you've learned to people who are going to carry the baton onwards. And that's one of the reasons why we rightly put so much work into children and youth work in churches all the guys next door working really hard in creche and Sunday school. It's why parents are given the authority by God to try and raise children to walk in his ways. And that's not easy. If you've made it to church this morning with your kids or your grandkids, you're doing exactly that. But just by coming to church on your own and being part of this service, you are being a witness to others. You are forming part of the community that the next generation are growing up in and learning from. So looking forward, how did Joshua do as the new leader of God's people? Was he the shepherd that Israel needed? Well, in Joshua chapter 1, we see he's instructed to meditate on God's word and to be strong and courageous. And it seems he was. The outcome is he organizes the people and he leads them successfully into the promised land. Israel then stays largely faithful to the Lord all the days of Joshua's life. But even here in today's passage, there are clues that Joshua is not ultimately the perfect leader that God's people need. We said earlier that Moses had a face-to-face -face relationship with the Lord, whereas Joshua does not enjoy the same access to God. He has to rely on God speaking through Eliezer the priest by inquiring of the Urim. Now, Bible scholars don't often offer too much clarity on this unusual phrase. It seems there were perhaps stones set in the breastplate of the priest that were used in some way to understand God's will, perhaps like casting lots. They're not mentioned very often in the Old Testament, and Moses never used them, it seems. He had a face-to-face -face relationship with God, after all. But in some way, they were an aid to the high priest in making decisions and deciding on the course of action. Perhaps the main thing to understand here is that Joshua's relationship was not one of direct access to God like Moses had experienced. A couple of weeks ago, um, Matt Smith told us about Balaam, who in chapter 24 prophesied this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Looking further ahead, Balaam sees a powerful ruler 
who will one day conquer all of the enemies of God's people, which brings us to our final point this morning. From our mountain viewpoint, we've looked back, we've looked ahead, and now we need that panoramic view, that unique perspective you get on a mountain peak where you can stand and turn around and see the whole horizon in every direction. And just to prove it's not always misty at the top of Scottish mountains, maybe it'll look at something a little bit uh, like this panorama. Is it going to panorama for us? This is the moment where you're going to see something amazing. <laughs> Quick panorama here. There we go. This is Torridon without the mist. This is what we didn't see that day. Probably got about 10 of these panoramas now. It's hard not to take them. <laughs> so just to prove that um, it's not always misty and rainy in Scotland. Oh, Fergus. That's, that's my good friend Fergus, who's actually from Reading, bizarrely, but there you go. Um, so that was Torridon without the mist. We're taking that same panoramic view with this passage now to finish. Moses was not the ultimate leader. Um, he wasn't the one that Balaam foresaw, and neither was Joshua. But both of them point forward to the star that did rise out of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. The name Joshua, which as we saw uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Hebrew language means God is salvation, becomes in the Greek language of the New Testament, Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, if you remember, the angel tells Joseph to give Mary's baby the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the leader that Moses knew the people needed. The leader who, unlike Joshua, has unlimited access to God. And the writer of the book of Hebrew sums it up well. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him. Just as Moses was faithful in all God's house, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. We can think of Moses and Joshua as kind of hyperlinks in the book of Numbers. If you click on them, they take you to Jesus. Moses says, without a leader, the people will be like sheep without a shepherd, vulnerable, no idea where they're going, and in great danger. And Jesus saw the crowds who came to him exactly as Moses described. And his response was to be filled with compassion. Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus went up a mountain at Calvary and died. Not for his own sin, but for your sin and mine. So that we can have access to God through him. Have you accepted Jesus as your shepherd, as your king? Will you follow him and obey his words? This is the way of life with God now and in heaven to come. Moses and Joshua were part of God's plan pointing towards Jesus coming as a baby in Bethlehem 1,400 years later. We live on the other side of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension. We're living in that time between Jesus' first and second comings. And it's good to remind yourself of the big view of God's unfolding plan in human history. I'm always amazed to think of those few disciples 
back in uh, Israel, the time of Jesus, spreading the gospel so that it passed all the way across Europe to the northern parts of Great Britain. That message lived there through the, lived here through the centuries, being passed on by faithful men and women, despite wars, hardships, plagues, and turmoil. The church being in a bit of a state during various centuries, but for over a thousand years there have been God's people in Newcastle. About 85 years ago, a group of believers met above the old co-op on Gosforth High Street, and the congregation there became known as Regent Chapel as the time passed. The reason we're all here this morning is because of events that took place in the 1930s. This church's history has all the signs of constant new beginning, new leaders, new followers, and God's faithfulness continuing. He continues to speak through his word, through his people, and through the events and circumstances of history. And we should take a moment here just to reflect, I think, on the contribution of those in our sprightly seniors age group, maybe especially those that have been part of the fabric of this local church for decades. It's been their ongoing witness, their acts of service, their giving, their maintenance of this building, and their willingness to pass on the baton to the next generation that means we are blessed today. Next week, we're going to see Catherine and Colin baptized, people from different generations, if I can say that, Colin, um, who are both passing on the baton by their witness through baptism. It's great, isn't it? We don't want to become too obsessed with statistics in church life, but we've seen 16 baptisms in the last 18 months in this church. Just as in the time of Moses, the baton is still being passed on. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, we read how Moses climbed Mount Nebo for an incredible panoramic view of the land. And then Moses died on that mountain. And we read in Deuteronomy 34 that God himself buried him. Wow. I don't think anyone else has had that kind of burial. I wonder if God did that because he knew there was a danger that the people would revere Moses so much and that there's a chance of some kind of shrine being built was a real possibility. I'm not sure. But Moses' death was not the last word in his story. 1,400 years after Moses stood on Mount Nebo looking into the promised land, Jesus goes up an unnamed mountain in the land of Israel to pray with Peter, James, and John. And Matthew 17 tells us this amazing story. As Jesus was praying, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then, there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Yes, here is some good news to end our mountain story on. Moses did get into the promised land, but only because he was with Jesus. I want to encourage you to stand on the mountain with Moses and take in the big view. When you have Jesus as your shepherd, your sins and failures are forgiven, and your best days are ahead. Moses saw his life in God's big picture. Don't see yours from the world's small, lowly viewpoint. If you have suffered serious disappointments, don't let that define the rest of your life in terms of how you serve God. Note here how God describes Moses' death. You too will be gathered to your people, 
as your brother Aaron was. And this is one of the first times in the Bible, actually, that the concept of what happens after death is mentioned. Death is not the end for Moses. He is gathered to his people, going home to his loved ones, not being absorbed into some anonymous life force or disappearing into nothing, but remaining a distinct person, recognizable as Moses, but so much more glorious. He was to be gathered with others who had known and loved God over the centuries. They would be recognizable figures too. His brother Aaron is mentioned, isn't it? So what's the big picture view here? For the Christian, life is far longer than our years on earth. So to finish, back to that disappointing day on Ben A I told you about earlier. On that same trip, Lucy went out and, and bought a picture of the mountain we had climbed but not seen. It literally is a big picture, actually. Um, and it's a bit faded now, but it still hangs in our lounge. It was a reminder that we had climbed the mountain. There was a great view, but we just couldn't see it that day. As you look back, don't let your sin, your failures, your disappointments cloud your view of life. Keep taking them to Jesus. God still has work for you to do. Look ahead. Realize you're part of God's plan. You're called to serve him where he has put you and to pass the baton on to the next generation. See the big view. God is always working out his purposes. The good shepherd will lead you now and one day he will call you home. Maybe this morning you just need that encouragement to remind you that that is the truth. If you're following Jesus, your best days are ahead of you. The promised land, a home in heaven, is our destination. We're going to respond now by singing, There is a Redeemer, to close. And the second verse says this, When I stand in glory, I will see his face, and there I'll serve my King forever in that holy place. That is the view from the mountain we've been talking about. Moses experienced it, and if we're trusting in Jesus, we will too. So let's stand and sing together.